CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Healthcare costs make up almost a fifth of spending in the U.S. and are the number one cause of personal bankruptcies. We all know that doctor's visits and medical procedures are expensive, and as it turns out, especially expensive in some parts of Georgia. Reporting by Georgia Health News finds that higher healthcare costs are in metro Atlanta than most other cities, and also found that complaints against insurance companies for denied coverage and and other grievances have been deemed valid by the state. Andy Miller is CEO and editor of Georgia Health News with us to talk about what these findings mean for Georgians' health care costs and coverage. Hello, Andy. Good to be here, Virginia. Well, let's start with the costs. You reported on the Healthy Marketplace Metro Index, ranking cities, comparing medical costs. So how does Metro Atlanta stack up? It's in the top third in terms of high health care costs, uh, 32nd among 112 metro areas that were uh, ranked uh, a lot higher than, let's say, Savannah was and Augusta was. Well, this report zeroed in on C-sections and blood tests. These were for a point of comparison, comparing prices to common procedures, but costs do vary greatly from city to city and even facility to facility. Can you give us a little bit of a range there? Right. Well, in San Francisco, uh, a C-section could be $20,000, but in Knoxville, Tennessee, it can be $4,500. So it varies greatly across the country, but also within a particular market as well. So where you live determines what your health care costs are for those kind of procedures? California would have typically higher costs, but even within Atlanta, uh, you see variation. Like a simple blood test can be uh, range anywhere from $79 to $270. So that's a surprise when you get the bill, obviously. But outside of Metro Atlanta, you report Georgia as a whole ranked number 15 for healthcare pricing. What kinds of numbers are we looking at or what kind of procedures? Well, in that particular case, it was an echocardiogram, a routine heart test, and uh, Atlanta stacked up 15th among 50 states in terms of the average price, somewhere around $290. So even within a city, prices can vary. And NPR looked at this. They did a series called, it's about hospital bills catching people off guard, basically. Here's an edited version of one story. We're going to call it When Kittens Attack. Jeanette Parker is an animal lover. That is breakneck Sally because she'll walk between your feet and trip you. But her love for animals got her in trouble last September. She saw a kitten by the side of the road. Parker had a packet of tuna in the car and pulled over to give it some food. And in the process, he just grabbed onto my finger while he was eating. So he broke the skin on my finger. And there had been a rabies alert in the county. So Parker went to the emergency room at Mariner's Hospital. She got the immunoglobulin injection that protects against rabies until the rabies vaccination takes effect. I was in and out of there really fast. And then the bill came. The total cost was $48,000. $48,000 for a rabies shot. She says she'd wish she'd gone to the health department in her community. There she might have gotten one for a rabies vaccine for less than $5,000. Now, you, Andy, wrote about a similar price disparity in Georgia for a rabies vaccine. What's going on there? Well, actually, 
yeah, there's a, there's tremendous difference if, if you can get a uh, if you can get a rabies uh, vaccine at, through a public health department, it, it can be a lot lower than what you could get at an emergency room. But but patients often are told, look, you need to go to the emergency room, and and those prices can be extremely high, uh, well over ten thousand dollars. So you know, she might have had the presence of mind at that point to say. Uh, I could go to the health department, but you, not everybody does. They could say the, the, you're going to the closest emergency room when something like that happens. And and that's a, that's a clear choice that many consumers make because they think, okay, this this could be trouble. Let me go to the nearest ER, and I've got health insurance. But it, it, you wind up with a huge bill. Like so what the, the bigger question here? Yeah. Why are healthcare prices so much higher in Atlanta and in Georgia? Well, I think uh, Metro Atlanta has a couple things going on. One is uh, the hospital market has really consolidated, and, and these big hospital systems, uh, through these consolidations, through these mergers, gain a lot of power in terms of their negotiations with health insurers, and, and they'll tell a health insurer, look, you, you need us in our network, you're going to have to meet our price. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing going on. Another thing is there are certain hospitals that every insurer wants in their network because they have this great reputation among consumers and consumers won't pick a network without that particular hospital. So I think that's going on as well. Was it the old uh, location, location, location real estate aided? I mean, you know, we know that we pay a premium for a restaurant in a prime location or or maybe a shop near the Beltline. So does the location of a doctor within Metro Atlanta matter? I think it definitely does. Uh, we profiled a, a woman in uh, Coweta County who wanted her uh, local network, uh, local hospital in her, in her network, and that's why she picked the plan that, that, uh, that, that she selected in the health insurance exchange. So you want something that's close and you want, uh, yeah, you want access. That's incredibly important, particularly for people with chronic disease. Well, we said at the top that medical costs are the number one cause for bankruptcies in the U.S., and there are things much more serious than kitten bites, although that was costly. Here's an example. This is from NPR series on medical bills again. Her Sharice Hickson, she got two ocrevus infusions for her multiple sclerosis. After the second dose in September, Sharice was surprised when a bill arrived in the mail a few weeks later. And I'm just like, what is this? Sharice is on disability and has both Medicare and Medicaid health insurance, so her medical bills are usually fully covered. But this time was different. Total charges, $122,873.30. $122,000. Story goes on to say that MS drugs are expensive due to low competition. But that's even high for such meds. And Sharice's insurance ended up leaving her with a $3,600 tab. And the Cleveland Clinic waived that after the NPR story. You've done similar things here in Georgia, right? Reporting on stories of people who get charged a lot of money, like Diane Conine. Tell us about her. Diane was uh, signed up for, as I said, signed up for an insurance plan during in the exchange late last fall, and she made sure that her local hospital, Piedmont Newton, was in the network. Now, she got very sick in January, and her uh, uh, tremendous ad- abdominal pain. Her daughter took her to the local ER, Piedmont Newton. Uh, they discovered after a CT c- CT scan that she had cancer. She had a tumor on her kidney. And the doctor said, look, this is a medical necessity. We need to get this out. Uh, and she had the procedure. And 
lo and behold, it turned out that Piedmont Noonan wasn't actually in her network. And um, so she ended up, uh, she's fine now in terms of the cancer, but she ended up with $87,000 in bills. And after you reported on it, what happened? Well, the uh, they appealed to Anthem Blue Cross, and they got in touch with the insurance commissioner's office. And we just found out this week that Anthem has decided, instead of fighting this, to actually pay Diane's bills, which is a, you know, a tremendous thing, obviously, for her, because she was looking at perhaps losing her home. Mm. So... You were there. You know, not everybody has a journalist or a lawyer on their side, certainly. So what is the average person listening to this supposed to do when faced with a choice between bankruptcy and life-saving care? You said Diane did her due diligence. She thought that she was in network. Turns out she wasn't. Is that the kind of thing that can get people stuck with huge bills? It is, and uh, and actually, consumers maybe should, if, if, if certainly if they have an elective procedure, is to make sure that uh, that hospital and that doctor are in network uh, so that they'll get, you know, the maximum amount of coverage. But, you know, we find that people with high deductible policies, uh, they won't shop around. They won't look for prices. And, and it, it, you know, if you're getting blood work or a mammogram or an MRI, it can really make a difference for people in terms of the out-of-pocket costs. That's Andy Miller of Georgia Health News, and he's talking about why you're going to pay more for care depending on where you live and also a little bit about following up on something that the Georgia Health News reported on about insurance companies. Now, this is something a, a number of states are working on legislation to stop these shocker bills, right? Georgia's General Assembly passed one last session. What is that going to do to protect consumers? Well, actually, the surprise billing legislation didn't pass. and it, it, it Sorry, it passed the Senate. Forgive me. No, that's fine. And, and it's always been a, it comes down to a stalemate between a bill that the insurers like, which is more transparency, and one that the physicians like, which is actually telling how much the physician's going to be paid if they're not in the network. Uh, this is a problem across the country. A lot of us have gotten surprise bills, including myself. When I had sinus surgery, I got a bill from an anesthesiologist that was almost $1,000. And, and, you know, I had to pay it. And I can afford it, but can you imagine somebody who lives paycheck to paycheck what that, you know, $1,000 bill is going to do? Well, let's get to this story on the complaints against insurance companies. If people think that their insurance company is not paying enough of a bill, they're denied uh, service, they can file a complaint. And they do so with the Office of Georgia Insurance Commissioner Jim Beck. 2018 data on these filings just came out. You reported on this. How many of these health insurance complaints did the state judge to be valid complaints? You know, a, a tremendous number, actually. Uh, you know, there were some companies that had high ratios of valid complaints, uh, some of the big ones, the biggest health insurer in the state, Anthem Blue Cross. And uh, these are uh, complaints uh, that the state regulators have not only received, but also in, in, in another category actually have said these are valid complaints. The insurer violated Either the terms of their contract or were an error, or the insurer was an error in terms of how they how they viewed the the particular situation, and these are only complaints, Virginia, that come through the insurance commissioner's office. They're not even talking about all the people that have employer plans uh, who who may have a problem, and typically those people would go to their employer probably if they had something that 
wasn't covered that should have been. So what happens then? After these complaints are made, the commissioner of insurance wants to create transparency in this process. Where do we go from here? Well, I, I think this is a good first step to get this public information out there. And I think a consumer can look at a, a company if they're selecting a, a plan in the exchange or even among their in, an employer plan. They can look at a, a, a company with that has a high level of complaints and say, maybe I don't want to pick that one. Maybe I want to go in a different direction. And I think it's also good that you know there's, there's attention being paid to this issue and, and a health insurer does not want a headline that says they have the the, the most valid complaints among mm-hmm. all the health insurers. Mm-hmm. How about for consumer protection purposes? It's not as if when you have an emergency appendectomy <laughs> and you get picked up uh, uh, on your way to the hospital, you say, well, wait, is this in my network? I'm going to go to the other hospital. What? How, how can we protect ourselves? Well, emergency situations are, are something different. Clearly, uh, you want to go to the nearest, uh, you know, the nearest facility in in, in that case. But uh, you may want to look, uh, you know, when you're not in an emergency situation, what's you know, and just check out, you know, the hospitals in terms of their safety record. I mean, there there are there are websites like Hospital Compare that can let a consumer when they're not in a medical situation, but you can check them out and say, okay. If there are a couple nearby ERs, which has the best safety record? And you can go online to determine that. Before we close, Georgia is trying to currently craft a request for a Medicaid waiver that could provide coverage for people in the insurance gap. Could that do something to address high health care costs, at least for some Georgians in the future? Well, what it could do is certainly uh, coverage is always going to pay more than somebody who's uninsured. A person who's uninsured often has gets the highest price in terms of their care, in terms of their medical bills that they face. And so anything that would provide coverage will help those people who are 100, under 100% of poverty uh, you know, afford afford a bill, and and actually, you know, it'll help them get medical care that they may have postponed because of the cost. Andy Miller, editor of Georgia Health News, thank you so much for filling us in. Good to be here. Now he has been talking about several of his recent stories about healthcare costs in Georgia. Stay with us for a music festival that's about mental health and wellness. When the On Second Thought continues. <laughs> We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The U.S. mental health care system is a multi-billion dollar industry, yet countless people living with or affected by mental illness fall through the cracks. Georgia ranks 47th out of 50 for access to mental health care, resources, and insurance coverage, making it even tougher to live with disorders that most data and experts find to be under-researched, over-treated, and over-stigmatized. The Hope Givers Mental Wellness and Music Festival is taking place this weekend at the Sweetland Amphitheater in LaGrange, and they're trying to make a dent in that. That is just a little taste of Judah and the Lion performing on the program of music and wellness and workshops. Tamlin Hall organized the event and is in the studio to tell us more. Welcome, Tamlin. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Well, it is Mental Health Awareness Month. This is a term of a big and complex umbrella. What do you hope to do with this festival? Well, our festival is really about one thing. It's about hope. 
It's about inspiration. And I always, anytime I, uh, I go around the country and I speak, uh, I use this word, humanity. And I always say, humanity wins. And that's what this is going to do for this community, for this state, and for this entire country. Well, so Hope Givers is this festival that yes. you put on. And you've also, this is a personal thing for you. You wrote and directed a film called Holdin' On. We've got a little clip to play from the trailer. Today is one of those days you can have your window rolled up or down and still be comfortable either way. Those are the best, man. They talk about it happening when you're down, when you hit rock bottom, when you can't take it anymore. I know what it's like when it happens. It should. Because I'm dead. Holding On is the name of that feature. That film was dedicated to one of your friends who died by suicide. What did you want people to know about his story? Holden had more humanity than anybody that I've ever met in my life. Uh, when I was younger, when I was growing up, I was bullied, I was picked on, I was very overweight, and I, I didn't have very many friends. And I didn't feel like I belonged in this world. And um, and there was a guy who was a couple of years older than me who would give me rides whenever I asked him. He would tell me jokes. He would make me laugh. And it, it, that sounds so simple, but sometimes we just need we just need to laugh with somebody. We just need to have that human interaction. And uh, and that was Holden. And he was voted friendliest of his senior class. Um, he was one of those who knew no strangers. Uh, his humanity shined, not just with me, but with everybody else. And so when he died by suicide, he was 19 years old. I was a junior in high school. And his life just made such a profound impact of, my, of, of mine. I felt like he helped save my life. So 10 years later, I, f I had a calling to tell a story. And I sat on it for three years because I felt like at the time, I, you know, I'm not a writer, not a director, not a producer, not any of these things that, you know, we're not good enough. I'm not going to get it right. I'm not going to do all these things. And, and finally, I wrote his family a 13-page handwritten letter. I was living in Los, Los Angeles at the time and sent it to Georgia. And, and they said yes. And that propelled this 10-year journey to, to get holding on made. Well, that film, well, you showed it all over the world, all over the country. You showed it to the Georgia Legislative Assembly. Yes. And this is something that we get, like a story like that about somebody. There's something about the way that artistry speaks to mental illness in the way that maybe, um, you know, someone standing up an expert showing numbers may not. And I wonder if that's part of it with the music festival. Is that why you're doing music? <laughs> yeah, I... I, I it's, it's funny that you say that. I, I was in Breckenridge, Colorado. We had this conversation about how hard is it to get somebody, a community, to come on a Wednesday night to talk about suicide prevention, and we're going to throw up some slides, mm -hmm. and we're going to have a PowerPoint, we're going to have all those things. And I just think as artists, we have such a profound impact on changing, uh, shifting someone's idea of what this is, because we can accept everybody for who they are. This is just a, a normal thing, just like cancer, just like breaking your arm. We can do that, but what we have to do is kind of go around the back door and tell these stories and be authentic and be real and just do it in a way that we're shining a light on everybody's voice and everybody's story. Because once we do that, we start to relate to each other and we start to know that, oh, I'm not alone in this. Oh, you have a story just like mine. Oh, my goodness. I'm just your son's just like my. Let me share my story. And it just becomes this pay it forward thing. So that's what we're doing with the music festival. We're just saying, hey, we're all in this together. We all need help. We all need hope. 
Let's come together as a community. Let's give a whole bunch of hugs. Let's meet our neighbors that we have never met, even though we've seen them at the grocery store for the past 15 years. We're going to say hello to them. And all of a sudden, because of this interaction, this communication, just like stuff that we've lost in this world, we're going to be able to communicate again. And we're going to love each other. We got to love each other. We got to love our neighbors just like we love our own kids. Okay, you got me. (laughs) I mean, I have to say, you know, I have seen those presentations that have been super effective in their own way. But there's also a number of speakers who are going to be at the festival this weekend in LaGrange, by the way. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Mel Carter is among them. She's head of mindfulness education and innovation at NYU, New York University. Mel, you with us? Hello. Good morning. Hello. How are you? I'm lovely. How are you all doing? Hi, Samlin. Hey, Mel. How are you? <laughs> so oh, we're so excited. We're hearing a lot of, you know, what I'm hearing from Mel, um, from Tamlin is all about positivity and hope. And that's something that a lot of people I don't think necessarily associate with talking about mental illness. So what is your role? How did you get involved in this event, Mel? Um, so I'm involved in the event. I mean, First of all, I'm just a big fan of Tamlin, and I'm a big fan of Tamlin's work. Um, And to be a part of something that is going to spread hope in a way that's unique, it's full of expression, it's going to allow connection and cultivate a sense of belonging, uh, I couldn't say no. Tamlin is a a buddy of mine, um, and uh, again, it's really just (laughs) that I'm a big fan of his work, and what he's putting together is so phenomenal and so needed and so unique. And um, it just feels like an honor. It was a no-brainer to say yes. Well, mindfulness and meditation, this is something that a lot of people are talking about. I mean, they're doing it in the military. They're doing it in the government. They're learning this, these kind of techniques. And we hear about, of course, millennials feeling burned out in the workplace and children who witness massive school shootings. So, Mel, what for you inspired you to take on this position as, as the head of mindfulness? How did you get there? So, you know, it's been a long journey for me, and it really started out with my own personal story. I, too, have struggled in the past. I, too, have, um, as a young child, was picked on and bullied, and I didn't have a language or an outlet to ask for help, and I didn't have tools or resources to help me move through the challenging emotions of what it means to enter emerging adulthood. And as I continued on my own journey, getting into meditation and mindfulness and my spiritual journey, um, uh, I'm a longtime transformational coach. Um, When the NYU opportunity presented itself and I had the opportunity to be a part of the development of students and our our next generation of leaders, again, that was a no-brainer for me. I fell in love with the student population. And, you know, if I think about when I was in college, I wasn't dealing with as much as these students are dealing with now. And, you know, if I can be a part of helping to reduce the stigma, to give them tools and and, um, help seeking behaviors to help them deal with the challenges of what it means to be in college and in emerging adulthood and the first time in free thought, well, you know, I have to have that pay it forward moment too. Well, Tamlin, for you, I mean, these band, people come to see these indie bands, you know, uh, the War and Treaty is going to be playing, yeah. a number of different bands are going to be playing. Do you think people are coming expecting to hear uh, this is how you keep yourself sane and centered? I think that they're going to come and experience, I always say like, hey, let's bring the cool factor. Let's bring the factor of get the people in the door and then let's hit them with the mission. 
because that's what we want to do because the Warren Treaty, Jude and the Lion, Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors, they all have their own personal stories and they're all going to share their stories. And we say, if we can do that, we're going to leave. If we touch one life, then we've done our job with this music festival. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's well, all we're trying to do. What, what is the draw for them? Did you choose those bands specifically they because curated, they talked about it? I, uh, yes. I will say that the, um, the director of Sweetland Amphitheater, uh, Kia Loveland, she uh curated this this festival um, with the bands. She knew that these are the bands who really have a have a mission of hope and acceptance and a willingness to talk about it. Uh, these bands, you know, national bands, they headlined Judah and the Lion just dropped their, their album there on the Today Show last week. And uh, it was something to get a community. I str- one thing I struggle with, with um, this may be a different topic, but, you know, growing up, I grew up in LaGrange and it was an hour south of Atlanta and it always felt like, oh man, Atlanta got everything. Atlanta, like these big cities always get everything why why can't we get stuff in my little rural town and that's the struggle with everything even mental health even you know everything that we're dealing with like we always feel like these rural communities don't get the access that cities do and so we said hey let's put this in a rural community let's take the risk let's get a demographic of reaching out to college kids and teens and youth and a different demographic that is typically at Sweetland Amphitheater and let's go for it let's take the risk let's get them there and let's touch some lives yeah so do you feel like in a small town surrounding that the way that we look at and treat mental health is different, perhaps? I mean, I know there are a lot of, you know, kind of codes and cultural norms inside of small towns that 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 may be either more communally accepting or maybe even less. I don't know. That's the risk. That's how it's, it's tough because it there are differences. Um, and when you go, when you go to different communities, you start to see, you know, the stigmas and that. You see all that stuff, but you see it in big cities as well. You see it in urban communities. We're all so similar in the way that we treat the stigma and the, you know, t- talking about our neighbors and, and blaming and doing these things where we go, well, if we just stand up to this and we share it, then someone's life is going to get touched by this, whether, you know, you're in your community, you're at work, you're at your church, wherever that is. Um, we relate to this so much in every single place in the state of Georgia and in the nation and in the world. So, Mel, we have just about a minute left, but I'm wondering, you have a background in the music industry, career as a music business executive in hip hop management. <laughs> Did you, did you, what correlations do you see in between music and mental health? This is a, an industry that maybe more than others, there's drug abuse, you know, creative people have a whole different sets of tensions. Do you see any correlations? I do. And I think what's so beautiful is that the, the three artists that are going to be at this event, and the fact that they're going to be sharing their stories, the fact that they're going to be honest and be an example of what's possible is what's going to be the most impactful and powerful. You know, music is medicine. Music allows you to enter a part of yourself. And like Tamlin was saying earlier, that shift, have that shift. And it can be the connector. It can be a word or um, cultivate a pathway of belonging that when you feel alone and you put on that music and it brings you to, transports you to somewhere else. So music is a healer. And to have that as the foundation of this festival, to bring people together, to be in celebration of what hope can do. I mean, music is hope. And yes, there are artists that struggle. And I think the fact that we have three artists that are coming and, you know, actually all of the speakers that are coming, that we're going to be all so willing to share our stories and to join in in the celebration of hope and promote hope. I mean, when you liberate Mel, yourself. Mel, I'm going to have to stop you right there. I'm so sorry no we're problem. out of time, but I really appreciate it. 
Mel Carter is one of the speakers on the program this weekend at the first Hope Givers Mental Wellness and Music Festival. Tamlin Hall is organizer of the festival. It'll be taking place this weekend at the Sweetland Amphitheater in LaGrange. Bands like Judah and the Lion and The War and Treaty and Drew Holcomb and The Neighbors will all perform. You're listening to music from War and Treaty, a band from Alabama. We regularly share news stories, pictures of kids and babies and food and pets via text and social media. Flux Projects invites you to share a song in real life. This weekend, we are going to be having something of like a giant sing-along in the shed, and it's, it's going to be amazing. Ann Archer-Dennington is executive director of Flux Projects, which is bringing a performance group to Atlanta on Mother's Day to lead whoever shows up at the shed at Pont City Market to sing Waterfalls, a song from a mother's point of view. They're two guys from Toronto, Nabu Edelman and David Goldman, started something that they called Choir, Choir, Choir about 11 years ago. And they started doing these sing-alongs, like literally inviting people to come to a bar, learn a song, and collectively sing it with them. And the audience becomes the choir. And you literally have a choir director. It just took off, and they they developed this huge following on YouTube and began touring around the country, then around the world, um, inviting people to come together, bring their voices together in song. I've seen a rainbow yesterday, but too many stones have come and finally been a trace of not one God given reason, because my life is ten shades of gray. I pray all ten fade away, sell the praise and for the seven days. There is just something magical about people who come together with their friends to join people they have never seen before and stand together and kind of proclaim their love of a song and just sing. And I think the great thing is you don't actually have to be able to sing at all to come and do this. They love to say that anyone can do this. They are going to spend the time teaching you a song. It's just kind of love of being together and singing. Waterfalls was a kind of organic choice for Flux Projects, which produces temporary events that connect people to creativity, to each other, and to place. The location that we now call Pond City Market sort of first became noteworthy in this area when there was a springs developed there, or found there, in 1868, I believe. And the underground springs has been an ongoing, important physical 
um, element of the of the location ever since. In fact, the springs are now even used in the air conditioning cooling system and the um, Old Fourth Ward Park and the lake that we think of. So we knew we wanted something around water and we wanted something that touched on the history of music in Atlanta. Enter TLC. Rosanda, Chili Thomas, Tion Tibaz Watkins, and Lisa Left Eye Lopez, whose 1995 hit is considered a signature song. And did we mention it's Mother's Day? Claim your spot this Sunday at 4.30 at the Shed at Pond City Market for the Waterfalls sing-along. It's also the official kickoff event for Flux Pond City Market, that project that's coming up in September. Bring your voice, plenty of water, and no scrubs. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Whether you go yellow or white, sweet or savory, grits are a southern food staple now popping up on menus all over the country. Food writer Aaron Byers-Murray goes deep in grits, a cultural and culinary journey through the South. She talks with growers and millers and chefs to understand the origins and evolution and significance of grits, and along the way examines how race, gender, and politics simmer in the significance of grits. Erin Byers-Murray joins us now on the line from Nashville. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you were born in Augusta, but spent most of your life outside of the South not growing up eating grits. (laughs) But but you do open the book with an anecdote about your family's, um, let's say, less traditional use for grits. Can you you share that story? Of course. So um, we were... We had moved from Augusta, and we were in Spartanburg at the time, and I was about seven or eight years old, and distinctly remember, we had a, an issue with red ants. You know, that's, that's one of the things about living in the South. You have critters. Um, but we had some red ants crawling on our patio, and my father pulled out a box of instant grits, and he pours a little line of instant grits right along the line of red ants that were trying to come into our house. And we all come out about 20 minutes later, and all I see are these little ant bodies, like exploded popcorn along the patio. Oh my goodness. And, you know, from that point on, I just thought, you know, I was not, I was a little turned off by grits. <laughs> <laughs> but do you did eventually, you left the South, then you moved back to the South. What was it that changed your mind about grits? <laughs> well, mostly my mother-in-law, <laughs> who actually prepared grits uh, when I first started coming to visit them. They lived in Knoxville at the time. And she would make grits every time we visited for for weekend breakfast. And, and her grits were phenomenal. They were, you know, uh, piles of luscious corn and you could pour butter on them. And it was just that that, that kind of brought me back um, to understanding that they are this, they can be this really delicious staple. So you got turned around on grits. And this is something that we're hearing a lot more about grits on, you know, fancy menus. And this traditionally had been food of the poor, but you spoke with chef and restaurateur Sean Brock, who told you grits are the ultimate expression of terroir. Now, this is a French (laughs) word, mostly associated with wine. Can you tell us what it means, terroir in grits? Yes. Well, what he was referring to really was this idea that, you know, he was getting his grits from small batch uh, millers and producers, and the corn that they were milling was, they're heirloom varieties of corn that that are now being um, 
starting to be revived and grown in different parts of the South. And, and so what he was saying is that you could taste the difference between, you know, a corn, a, a blue corn that's milled a certain way and a red corn that's milled a certain way. Um, and those corns, depending on where they were grown, can evoke the flavors of the soil that they're grown in and the, the location that they're, they're um, that they can bring with them. And so what he was getting at was just like wine, you know, you can, you, grits are really just a ground corn product. And so you're essentially getting all the flavors that the corn, you know, the corn brings when it, where, from where it's grown. Well, okay, so we're hearing that more from foodie people, that you can taste terroir in chocolate or you can taste where coffee is grown. Can you really taste a bowl of grits and say, oh, that's from North Carolina? <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pinpoint where, personally. <laughs> he might, but um, I, no, I think that, I think there is something to, if you wanted to taste these, like I said, these small batch millers and, and growers who are um, who are creating grits from different varieties of corn. If you were to cook them the same, taste them side by side, you would you would taste a little nuance and a little difference. Okay, for a lot of people, grits are either light yellow grain uh, that, that come in a package of Quaker instant grits, like mm-hmm. like we're used for the fire ants. Are those real grits? They are. They absolutely are. I mean, the the thing is, you know, instant grits. The, the way that they're processed, it just there a lot of things are stripped out of the corn. Um, and so you do get the corn in there, but you also have other nutrients that are put back into it. So um, they are grits and, and they are totally viable um, and they feed a lot of people. So um, they are. But what we're seeing now are, you know, different varieties coming up and different producers making them. So you wrote that this book was a part of an intentional quest to understand and appreciate the South. Why were grits the vehicle for uh, sliding into that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, anytime I'm in a new place, a new region, um, or traveling or getting to know a place that I've just moved to, I'm, I'm always fascinated by learning through about that place through its food. And when I got to the South, uh, get back to the South, really, um, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand and wanted to, to better understand, including our history and, um, and a lot of different d- cultural differences between where I had been living and, and where I was living now. So for me, the, anytime you dig into a, a food story or, or research a food topic or food history, you start to uncover these, you know, these little stories that maybe um, wouldn't come up in, in daily life. And so for me, the research allowed me to really not just talk about food and think about where this physical product was coming from, but really to understand the people who had been ushering it um, throughout history, but also into our modern era. Mm-hmm. Well, you did a similar thing with Shucked, your, your book about oysters in the past. But this is a whole different region of the world. And but, but let's go back to that origins of grits. What did you learn about where they come from and how far back we can trace them? Yeah, well, I think so many people associate them with the southeast um, of the United States. But what I learned and what I started in a lot of research and rabbit hole digging, um, you know, you can actually trace it back to the origins of corn. So, you know, corn starts is starting to get cultivated nine or 10,000 years ago in uh, central Mexico. And there's evidence of these hand tools that are like a, you know, a rudimentary mortar and pestle um, grinding mechanism that um, people would use to, and there's, you know, evidence that they were using that with corn. And so right when corn is, you know, being cultivated and brought along, people are grinding the kernels, 
and I'm making the leap, but I'm guessing they're also putting those kernels with water, heating them over uh, fire and, and creating a porridge. You know, that's basically the, the basic origins of, of where it started. And of course, they move along with the corn itself, um, but they arrive, they, you know, corn doesn't really arrive in the U.S. until, or the southeastern U.S. until about 2,000 years ago. So, so we, you know, we attribute it to this region, but really it goes back much further. Well, and it now is the official prepared food of the state of Georgia, grits. How did, how did <laughs> right. grits become southern in particular? Well, I think that you know there are a lot of there are a lot of theories about you know why a certain dish sticks to a certain area um, in in the South, especially. I think that unfortunately our history with slavery um, kind of brought it closer to this region. Um, grits were like many things, kind of a fuel food, and they um, were inexpensive, and you could grow the corn and also grind it, um, and so you know, massive numbers of people were using that as sustenance in this part of the country. Um, and it sticks and it, it's, it's not just food of one race. It's, it really was the food of everybody because, you know, the if enslaved communities were eating it, people in the big house were eating it. And, and it ends up sort of throughout, you know, time, it kind of migrates with, with all classes and all races. Um, but I think because so many people were eating that as sustenance in this part of the country, it, it kind of got its, its sticking point here in the Southeast. We're talking about grits, a culinary and culture, I'm sorry, a cultural and culinary journey through the South. It's a new book by my guest, food writer, Aaron Byers Murray. Well, the, the, that question about origins is a big discussion in food in general, but especially about Southern food right now. And as you said, as you're uncovering this story, so much more gets revealed. You write in the book, name any dish that is considered Southern, trace it back far enough, and you will unearth stories of theft, slavery, appropriation, and lost. It's the questions we, we've talked about a lot on this program. Who can say what is Southern food, and does anybody own grits. But is that, for your purposes, as you were discovering this, the right question? Well, I don't believe it is because it, you cannot put an ownership on this. You know, it, it, if you if you try to, it does, it gets sticky. <laughs> and so I, I think what it, the, the bigger question is like, why is this um, how does this dish become so universal? Because it really is beyond the, it's beyond who owns it and who eats it every day and who's allowed to prepare it. You know, it's much more about, you know, how can we share this dish and how can we share the stories of this dish? And because eventually it's, it's a common ground, right? Well, th I would hope so. I mean, you do, but we did talk about, you know, it was Central Americans moved to the United States. It was a Native American dish, um, a dish of, as you said, uh, the, the, the enslaved people and the people living in the big house. So there's an evolution here. But you just said, who's allowed to prepare it? I, I, I'd love to know more about that. Who often ends up preparing grits? <laughs> well, now um, we're seeing, you know, it's really showing up on so many fine dining menus. Um, it is, it's being sort of vaulted <laughs> into, um, into fine dining by, um, by chefs, and many of them are, are male. Um, and uh, traditionally, you know, uh, it was women who were the ones cooking this dish. And 
and bringing it, you know, along through history. Um, they were probably the ones growing the corn, and then they were also the ones grinding it and then cooking it. Um, but in, you know, probably this, around the 80s, uh, grits became a popular dish, um, and it has since kind of turned into, you know, been, been brought into other hands. That's, you know, not to say that we can't go back and honor and celebrate the women who brought it this far. Um, but I think that right now what you're seeing is just, it's a lot more, uh, it's getting a lot of other kinds of attention because it's being put on fine dining room tables. Mm -hmm. Which I think is funny to me. I remember, uh, you know, seeing somebody eating polenta in an Italian restaurant and saying that, you know, this used to be the food of peasants. And, mm. and there's a way that, like, this cheap lobster used to be the food of the poor. It's very interesting how these things have evolved. And you talk to some of these grits gurus <laughs> along the way, you know, uh, um, from Anson Mills, you know, growers, millers, cooks, people who are spending a lot of time and energy elevating, as you said, vaulting grits. What did you learn from them about how they are regarding this food that is simple and how are they keeping it true to its origins? Well, I think what many of uh, of the growers and millers today, especially those um, the ones you mentioned, Anson Mills, um, another you know Geechee Boy Mill, it, you know, they really are looking at it as a you know the farming element. So, so they're looking at the corn product itself, um, and they're trying to revive these historic grains that almost disappeared basically um, because they had been bred out or they had, you know, been replaced by um, GMO crops. And so, you know, these corns and these varieties, which they're trying to, to plant and grow and use and, you know, be able to, to regenerate. Um, it, it is a nod back to the past. It's a nod back to how, how, you know, before industrialization and before um, modern milling became such a, a, a big industry, um, you know, this was what, you know, growers, you know, cooks, gardeners were doing. This is, they were growing corn in their garden. They were taking it to the mill and they were, you know, eat, this was the sustenance, you know? Um, so in some ways they're honoring that, uh, in other ways they're creating products that, you know, are now a little higher priced. Yeah. I was going to say that's a <laughs> six to $10 acceptable. bag of grits yeah, instead yeah. of, a, a you know, a dollar 89 at the supermarket, which of course there's a big difference in those two. Yeah. Uh, and I think, but I think what you, you also see, uh, you know, in, in a lot of my understanding and research, you know, 99% of people who are eating grits right now <laughs> are eating Quaker, Jim Dandy, Aunt Jemima, you mm -hmm. know, they are still eating the, the, box of grits that you can find on the shelf and they're not all instant they're all you know they have old-fashioned grits they have slow cooking grits so it's you know that what most people are actually getting is what you find in the grocery store um, these small batch producers I think are doing their part but we have to understand that with that comes the price of their their work yeah that so much gets revealed there's so many little details about grits big moment in politics when uh, President Jimmy Carter <laughs> ran for the White House the national media scrutinized his dietary habits. You, you know, call out and look at your own whiteness and, and the weight of researching this book. But I'm wondering about, you know, what were some of the assumptions that you maybe set out with that were dismantled along the way? Or what were you most surprised to learn about grits? I really, I think 
um, the history of, of where grits come from and that there, you know, there is such a Native American influence on, on this dish and so many of our foodways um, that are unacknowledged uh, was a big, you know, that was a big learning curve for me and understanding, you know, how you, you, you assume grits and the naming of grits and, and where grits start and, and go to, you know, you just assume that it's got a locational, um, you know, relationship. But, but my, my, my big learning was not only that, not only how deep the history goes, but also that it, it has become such a universal uh, dish. I mean, you can find a version of grits, a corn-based porridge in cultures all over the planet, you know, it's all over the world. So, um, so really it's, it's that going from, you know, attributing what we can, you know, how, how much we can to the, the people who actually got it to this point. Um, and then understanding now that it's not one groups or one um, region's food and identity. It, it really can be a universal product. Well, we do also have a, a recipe. You, you make a call to action. Tell people it's time to go out and buy a bag of stone ground grits from a local <laughs> mill and to make them and offer a basic recipe, which we are going to post on our website at gpbnews.org. Super quick, what's your favorite way to eat grits? Oh, shrimp and grits, always. A Creole version, yes. Sausage, mandui, shrimp, mushrooms, that's my favorite. <laughs> All right, Erin Byers-Murray, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. That's the food writer, Erin Byers-Murray. Her most recent book is called Grits, A Cultural and Culinary Journey Through the South. Her recipe for good grits at gpbnews.org. Now, you can always join our conversation on our Facebook group. What's your favorite way to prepare grits? GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. And that's our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Sirpa Brock's daughter, Jan Rowell's daughter, Yolanda Love Palmer's daughter, and also Sean Rose Kylie's daughter is our senior producer. Irma Smith's son is our editor. I'm Patricia Prescott's daughter. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Mother's Day weekend. Go sing some waterfalls. Open some chocolates, smell some flowers, make some breakfast, do whatever. Enjoy yourself, and we'll be back on Monday with more of On Second Thought.